Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inglewood Public Library's First Chapter Fridays. This week, we are continuing with our primer on bell hooks. The title of the book I will be reading you today is Talking Back, Thinking Feminist, Thinking Black. Talking Back. In the world of the Southern Black community I grew up in, back talk and talking back meant speaking as an equal to an authority figure. It meant daring to disagree, and sometimes it just meant having an opinion. In the old school, children were meant to be seen and not heard. My great-grandparents, grandparents, and parents were all of the old school. To make yourself heard, if you were a child, was to invite punishment, the backhand lick, the slap across the face that would catch you unaware, or the feeling of switches stinging your arms and legs. To speak, then, when one was not spoken to was a courageous act, an act of risk and daring. And yet, it was hard not to speak in warm rooms, where heated discussions began at the crack of dawn, women's voices filling the air, giving orders, making threats, fussing. Black men may have excelled in the art of poetic preaching in the male-dominated church, but in the church of the home, where the everyday rules of how to live and how to act were established, it was black women who preached. There, black women spoke in a language so rich, so poetic, that it felt to me like being shut off from life, smothered to death, if one were not allowed to participate. It was in that world of woman talk, the men were often silent, often absent, that was born in me the craving to speak, to have a voice, and not just any voice, but one that could be identified as belonging to me. To make my voice, I had to speak, to hear myself talk, and talk I did, darting in and out of grown folks' conversations and dialogues, answering questions that were not directed at me, endlessly asking questions, making speeches. Needless to say, the punishments for these acts of speech seemed endless. They were intended to silence me, the child, and more particularly the girl child. Had I been a boy, they might have encouraged me to speak, believing that I might someday be called to preach. There was no calling for talking girls, no legitimized rewarded speech. The punishments I received for talking back were intended to suppress all possibility that I would create my own speech. That speech was to be suppressed so that the right speech of womanhood would emerge. Within feminist circles, silence is often seen as the sexist right speech of womanhood, the sign of woman's submission to patriarchal authority. This emphasis on woman's silence may be an accurate remembering of what has taken place in the households of women from WASP backgrounds in the United States, but in black communities and diverse ethnic communities, women have not been silent. Their voices can be heard. Certainly for black women, our struggle has not been to emerge from silence into speech, but to change the nature and direction of our speech, to make a speech that compels listeners, one that is heard. Our speech, the right speech of womanhood, 
was often the soliloquy, the talking into thin air, the talking to ears that do not hear you, the talk that is simply not listened to. Unlike the black male preacher whose speech was to be heard, who was to be listened to, whose words were to be remembered, the voices of black women giving orders, making threats, fussing, could be tuned out, could become a kind of background music, audible but not acknowledged as significant speech. Dialogue, the sharing of speech and recognition, took place not between mother and child or mother and male authority figure, but among black women. I can remember watching, fascinated, as our mother talked with her mother, sisters, and woman friends. The intimacy and intensity of their speech, the satisfaction they received from talking to one another, the pleasure, the joy. It was in this world of woman's speech, loud talk, angry words, woman with tongues quick and sharp, tender sweet tongues, touching our world with their words, that I made speech my birthright, and the right to voice, to authorship, a privilege I would not be denied. It was in that world, and because of it, that I came to dream of writing, to write. Writing was a way to capture speech, to hold on to it, keep it close, and so I wrote down bits and pieces of conversations, confessing in cheap diaries that soon fell apart from too much handling, expressing the intensity of my sorrow, the anguish of speech, for I was always saying the wrong thing, asking the wrong questions. I could not confine my speech to the necessary corners and concerns of life. I hid these writings under my bed, in pillow stuffings, among faded underwear. When my sisters found and read them, they ridiculed and mocked me, poking fun. I felt violated, ashamed, as if the secret parts of myself had been exposed, brought into the open, and hung like newly cleaned laundry, out in the air for everyone to see. The fear of exposure, the fear that one's deepest emotions and innermost thoughts will be dismissed as mere nonsense, felt by so many young girls keeping diaries, holding and hiding speech, seems to me now one of the barriers that women have always needed and still need to destroy so that we are no longer pushed into secrecy or silence. Despite my feelings of violation, of exposure, I continued to speak and write, choosing my hiding place as well, learning to destroy work when no safe place could be found. I was never taught about silence. I was taught that it was important to speak, but to talk a talk that was in itself a silence, taught to speak and yet beware of the betrayal of too much heard speech. I experienced intense confusion and deep anxiety in my efforts to speak and write. Reciting poems at Sunday afternoon church service might be rewarded. Writing a poem, when one's time could be, quote, better spent sweeping, ironing, or learning to cook, was luxurious activity, indulged in at the expense of others. Questioning authority, raising issues that were not deemed appropriate subjects, brought pain, punishments, like telling Mama I wanted to die before her because I could not live without her. That was crazy talk, crazy speech, the kind that would lead you to end up in a mental institution. Little girl, I would be told, if you don't stop all this crazy talk and crazy acting, you are going to end up right out there at Western State. Madness was not just physical abuse, 
was the punishment for too much talk if you were female. Yet, even as this fear of madness haunted me, hanging over my writing like a monstrous shadow, I could not stop the words, making thought, writing speech. For this terrible madness which I feared, which I was sure was the destiny of daring women born to intense speech, after all, the authorities emphasize this point daily, was not as threatening as imposed silence as suppressed speech. Safety and sanity were to be sacrificed if I was to experience defiant speech. Though I risked them both, deep-seated fears and, and anxieties characterized my childhood days. I would speak, but I would not ride a bike, play hardball, or hold the gray kitten. Writing about the ways we are traumatized in our growing up years, psychoanalyst Alice Miller makes the point in For Your Own Good that it is not clear why childhood wounds become, for some folk, an opportunity to grow, to move forward rather than backward in the process of self-realization. Certainly, when I reflect on the trials of my growing up years, the many punishments, I can see now that in resistance I learned to be vigilant in the nourishment of my spirit, to be tough to courageously protect that spirit from forces that would break it. While punishing me, my parents often spoke about the necessity of breaking my spirit. Now, when I ponder the silences, the voices that are not heard, the voices of those wounded and or oppressed individuals who do not speak or write, I contemplate the acts of persecution, torture, the terrorism that breaks spirits, that makes creativity impossible. I write these words to bear witness to the primacy of resistance, struggle in any situation of domination, even within family life, to the strength and power that emerges from sustained resistance and the profound conviction that these forces can be healing, can protect us from dehumanization and despair. These early trials, wherein I learned to stand my ground, to keep my spirit intact, came vividly to mind after I published Ain't I a Woman? and the book was sharply and harshly criticized. While I had expected a climate of critical dialogue, I was not expecting a critical avalanche that had the power in its intensity to crush the spirit, to push one into silence. Since that time, I have heard stories about black women, about women of color, who write and publish, even when the work is quite successful, having nervous breakdowns, being made mad because they cannot bear the harsh responses of family, friends, and unknown critics, or becoming silent, unproductive. Surely, the absence of a humane critical response has tremendous impact on the writer from any oppressed, colonized group who endeavors to speak. For us, true speaking is not solely an expression of creative power, it is an act of resistance, a political gesture that challenges politics of domination that would render us nameless and voiceless. As such, it is a courageous act. As such, it represents threat to those who wield oppressive power, that which is threatening must necessarily be wiped out, annihilated, silenced. Recently, efforts by black women, writers to call attention to our work serves to highlight both our presence and absence. Whenever I peruse women's bookstores, I am struck not by the rapidly growing body of feminist writing by black women, but by the paucity of, of available published material. Those of us who write and are published remain few in number. The context of silence is varied and multidimensional. Most obvious are the ways racism, sexism, and class exploitation act to suppress and silence. Less obvious are the inner struggles, 
the efforts made to gain the necessary confidence to write, to rewrite, to fully develop craft and skill, and the extent to which such efforts fail. Although I have wanted writing to be my life work since childhood, it has been difficult for me to claim writer as part of that which identifies and shapes my everyday reality. Even after publishing books, I would often speak of wanting to be a writer as though these works did not exist, and though I would be told, you are a writer. I was not yet ready to fully affirm this truth. Part of myself was still held captive by domineering forces of history, a familial life that had charted a map of silence, of right speech. I had not completely let go of the fear of saying the wrong thing, of being punished. Somewhere in the deep recesses of my mind, I believed I could avoid both responsibility and punishment if I did not declare myself a writer. One of the many reasons I chose to write using the pseudonym Bell Hooks, a family name, my mother Sarah Oldham, grandmother to Rosabelle Oldham, great-grandmother to me, was to construct a writer identity that would challenge and subdue all impulses leading me away from speech into silence. I was a young girl buying bubblegum at the corner store when I first really heard the full name Bell Hooks. I had just talked back to a grown person. Even now I can recall the surprised look, the mocking tones, that informed me I must be kin to Bell Hooks, a sharp-tongued woman, a woman who spoke her mind, a woman who was not afraid to talk back. I claimed this legacy of defiance, of will, of courage, affirming my link to female ancestors who were bold and daring in their speech. Unlike my bold and daring mother and grandmother, who were not supportive of talking back, even though they were assertive and powerful in their speech, Bell Hooks, as I discovered, claimed, and invented her was my ally, my support. That initial act of talking back outside the home was empowering. It was the first of many acts of defiant speech that would make it possible for me to emerge as an independent thinker and writer. In retrospect, talking back became for me a rite of initiation, testing my courage, strengthening my commitment, preparing me for the days ahead. The days when writing, rejection notices, periods of silence, publication, ongoing development seem impossible but necessary. Moving from silence into speech is for the oppressed, the colonized, the exploited, and those who stand and struggle side by side, a gesture of defiance that heals, that makes new life and new growth possible. It is that act of speech, of talking back, that is no mere gesture of empty words, that is the expression of our movement from object to subject, the liberated voice. Thank you for listening. That was chapter one of Bell Hooks Talking Back. If you enjoyed that chapter and would like to read more, please check out our Inglewood Public Library catalog online at library.cityofinglewood.org.